Hello, and welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, where we explore the ups and downs of the creative process and how to keep it moving. I'm your host, Nancy Norbeck. I am a writer, singer, improv comedy newbie, science fiction geek, and creativity coach who loves helping right-brained folks get unstuck. I am so excited to be coming to you with interviews and coaching calls to show you the depth and breadth both of creative pursuits and creative people, to give you some insight into their experiences, and to inspire you. As you know, if you've been listening to this show for a while, I define creativity very broadly and love breaking our typical mold of what creative looks like. Today's guest is one of those who might surprise you, but he absolutely has followed his curiosity. Kyle Fletcher, also known as the Drink Pro, has followed his own interest into the world of cocktails, whiskey, beer, and wine, with a focus on appreciation and moderation. As we discuss, if you're binge drinking, it's mighty difficult to notice nuances of flavor, much less enjoy them. Kyle tells us how he first started exploring the world of whiskey and other drinks in detail, how he's learned the most and come to appreciate experimentation, and how his interest in performance found an outlet on his YouTube channel, where he shares his excitement for new drinks and new flavors. He also gives us some advice on how to start our own explorations without a Sherpa. If you don't drink, as I largely don't, and fear this episode will leave you feeling left out, I can assure you that you'll still find it an interesting journey into a more unusual passion. Here's my conversation with Kyle Fletcher. Kyle Fletcher, I'm, I'm psyched to talk to you today. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I, I, you, your thing is so off of the typical path that people expect when they hear what I do. And that's part of why I wanted to talk to you because it seems to me like there's a whole lot of curiosity following going on for you. Oh, absolutely. Can can you tell me how how did you get to be so interested in all of the nuances of different kinds of drinks and and how did you get to your philosophy of what drinking should and shouldn't be? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I think that um a, a lot of what I did initially, you know, like so many people was I started drinking with with family and I saw it was like the social activity. My, my family would get together. They would all have a beer or two and talk about, you know, what's been going on, catch people up with each other. Um, and then as I sort of watched more and more uh, people that were more my own age, I would see that they weren't drinking that way. You know, it was something that was uh, an escape it was something I thought was kind of an unhealthy way to, to live your life. Um, and I thought there was sort of, uh, you know, a chasm between how people had been uh, approaching this, this, you know, historically significant drink. I mean, spirits and beer and wine have been around for hundreds of years, if not thousands of years. But um, we've, we've always, you know, treated it in my family like uh, sort of a a component of being social together. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to kind of bring that about in younger groups and in groups that, you know, otherwise um, hadn't approached uh, drinking that way. They've been approaching it like a, a way to, to run away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I got really lucky. I, I met with a couple people when I was in school in Bloomington, Indiana, and uh, they they really kind of mentored me in, in uh, whiskey tasting and, and the different interesting nuances of scotch is where I got started. Uh, but after that, I sort of discovered bourbon and I discovered cocktails and, and this whole other world. There's a couple of, you know, YouTube channels I saw that were doing this kind of thing. 
um, in a in a more narrow context, there was uh, the Whiskey Tribe is one of the bigger ones, uh, and they really you know highlight the fact that this is kind of a fun social activity, and there's a lot of interesting flavors you can pull from from whiskey. And I, I'd always loved food. You know, I, I love the different flavors in food. That's another thing that was big in my family was eating together. Mm-hmm. Um, then I, I kind of found other places where I could discover those flavors for a short period of time. I, I smoked cigars and kind of enjoyed the nuances of cigar tasting, um, kind of got away from that and moved more into the realm of spirits. Uh, and, you know, it's just been a lot of fun to to do this deep dive and see how many different notes you can pull out. Uh, I think a lot of times you know, people see wine tasting mm-hmm. and they'll see somebody go through these 10 or 12 different flavors in a glass of wine. And they'll go, there's no way that's all actually in there. Um, and you know, it, it, at some point it feels like they're making it up mm-hmm. until you sit down with them and you have them explain where those notes are coming from and why they're saying, Oh, I, I get this sort of, you know, light, you know, blueberry characters. Like, well, there's no blueberry in that wine, mm-hmm. but there's certain things that are reminiscent of blueberry. And once you learn to find them, you can't, unfind them you know (laughs) so so it becomes a lot of fun and then you pick up a random wine you know something that like my dad has always drank uh you know the yellowtail and i'd pick it up and i'd smell things and taste and things in it that he'd never picked up before and Mm -hmm. you know it's all about being able to share those experiences and say hey look for this interesting thing and something you know you already do yeah it's not it's not like having a can of coke right no (laughs) (laughs) what would you get you get sugar and acid and yeah you probably don't want to go there it's it's interesting though because hearing you talk about this is reminding me i don't know if you've ever seen the movie french kiss with kevin klein and meg ryan but no i haven't there's you know she's she's in france she hooks up with kevin klein who's basically this crook um (laughs) and they end up on his family's vineyard and there's a scene where he's explaining to her she finds this little box with all of these bottles in it which was like a childhood project of his and and it's got all of the like local herbs and trees and flowers and things in it and and he says you know smell these and these are all in the wine that grows around here and then the next time she has a glass of wine she actually notices that kind of thing yes that's, that's i remember exactly. you know seeing that scene and thinking oh now i want to do that and i've never <laughs> i've never really been into wine but i did this is the other thing that came to mind while you were talking i did go to the international pinot noir celebration three and a half years oh, ago four and a half years like ago fun. it was a blast i went i went because among other things it looked like one hell of a party and you, oh, you talk about amazing <laughs> food they had fabulous chefs and more more alcohol than I could imagine. Because um, <laughs> apparently that group just like they, they have this vault that they keep these things in. So it's part of the reason yeah. that people go is that they get to try things they would never get to try anywhere else. Oh, absolutely. And I got an email before I went that said, do not, do not feel that you, you know, have to finish everything you are given or you will be on your back before lunchtime, oh, which yeah. is certainly true. But they did it was the 50th anniversary in 2015 of growing pinot noir in the willamette valley in oregon and so their grand seminar was all about champagne and how Mm. champagne is made and you know and and i found it absolutely fascinating it's like okay how do you get the bubbles into the champagne you know yeah but they came around and i think i don't even 
it was at least two or three different flights of these are the wines that go into it. And then this is yeah. what it's like at this stage. And this is what it's like at this stage and, and all of that. And it was the first time in my life there was one of them that they were saying, you know, there were notes of green apple, green apple. I remember specifically mm. because I was like, oh, look, I could. Yes, there are. That isn't that cool. <laughs> I got it. I got one. You know, yeah. I'm surrounded by complete wine snobs and I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, there's a thing here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that could be. It, it, I'm glad you mentioned, though, the uh, the fact you don't have to finish them all and you don't have to keep drinking them all. I think uh, I've been to a couple of whiskey events where people get uh, way over served. And a lot of it is because, you know, they're not used to this idea of you don't have to finish the glass mm -hmm. next to almost every, you know, when you go to these events and you walk around, they have booths. Um, and also when they have like seminar style tastings, where you are all sitting at tables and there's someone up front. Almost always there's going to be a, 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 a container next to where people are sitting where you can pour out the extra mm -hmm. wine um, or pour out the extra whiskey or whatever uh, that people kind of think I think when they first come into this they assume oh that's for people who can't handle it or that's for people who didn't like it. it's like no no it's so you can retain some sense of sobriety throughout <laughs> this whole process yeah yeah it was very interesting for me because i really don't drink much at all and yeah. i didn't know anything about wine and one of my friends when she dropped me off at the airport before i went looked at me and said you're gonna come back a wine snob aren't you and i said <laughs> i have no idea but you know when everything that you know about wine you've learned in three days from some serious wine snobs yeah you do indeed turn into the world's most most ignorant wine snob which is what i am now um but but yeah and and you know people were just uh, i wonder what the soil content because this was on a, a college campus that's a dry uh -huh. campus which also cracks me up oh, you yeah. know in the summer and and you know people would either dump into the i don't remember even what they're called um or just dump it out on the ground and it does feel mm -hmm. wasteful you know when it's like oh, sure. oh you know you've never got a chance to try one of these before and you might not ever get the chance again and you do feel like you should finish the whole thing just because oh, it's this thing that you know where else were you going to encounter it but yeah you right. absolutely would end up on the floor and because oh, i yeah. really don't drink and have no tolerance i did the second night i realized you know okay at as of nine o'clock i am only having water because yeah. oh, I yeah. will wake up in the middle of the night with a headache again, and I don't really want to do that. And also, this is me. So let's just water only from X point. So when hydrating is a big thing, too. A lot of people don't drink enough water, you know, putting aside whether or not they're drinking alcohol. And, you know, if you don't stay very fully hydrated, even if you don't get drunk at all, you, you keep drinking, you know, a steady amount for a long period of time at one of these events, you're going to wake up in the morning feeling pretty dried out and maybe have a headache and maybe feel mm -hmm. a little un, you know, unpleasant. It's, uh, you know, I, I always tell people when you're done with something like this, go home and try to drink as much water as humanly possible mm -hmm. before you go to bed. Yeah, you're going to get up a couple times in the middle of the night, <laughs> tea, but it's worth it. It's worth it. I promise you. Yeah. You, you in the morning, you will thank yourself for doing that yes. the night before. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so you met these people who introduced you to all of these things. How, how did that, how did that look? Did it, I mean, it had to have been somewhat of a gradual thing, but, and how did yeah. you react at first? Yeah, I, uh, well, you know, I'd always enjoyed, um, spirits more than beer. I kind of, you know, learned about drinking at all through beer and wine, but, uh, they were never really my, my thing. Uh, and I got interested in, in whiskey pretty quickly, 
Uh, I think part of that was because at the time I was um, smoking cigars with a lot of people who were much older and cigars and scotch are very often paired together. Um, but some of those people that were, you know, at these sort of uh, cigar meetups um, said, hey, you should come over to the, the couple bars locally. Like the Irish Lion is one in Bloomington that I really like, and that's got a lot of great scotch. Um, they took me over there and we tried several different things together. Um, I think my first reaction really was uh, uh, a, it was a bit of a struggle um, mm-hmm. because some of the flavors, in, in particularly in scotch, uh, can be difficult. Uh, you know, there's definitely going to be an alcohol burn with your high proof spirits. But with scotch, you're also going to end up into the world of things like Isla scotches, which are really smoky and peaty. And sometimes will even have an iodine flavor or a rubber flavor. And that's something that's really difficult to kind of wrap your brain around <laughs> when, you're, yeah. when you're expecting a, a relatively sweet fruit forward spirit. Um, but uh, it's it's really been a journey of just... Um, my curiosity always getting the best of me <laughs> and always wanting to find out more and learn more. I've always been somebody who, you know, when I get interested in something and curious about something, I become a little bit obsessive and I <laughs> just, <laughs> I just have to go find out more and learn more and dig as deep as I can. So it's, it's served me well so far in, in the world of uh, spirits. And, uh, you know, I started out learning about scotch and then kind of worked my way into bourbon. And, and now I've been reading up on cocktails. I've got several different cocktail books. I bought all the accoutrements to, to make, you know, cocktails like I'm in a bar with, uh, you know, shaking shakers and mixing glasses and everything. And it's, it's just because I started reading about, well, why do they do it this way? You know, why do they use these metal shakers? What's the purpose of using the stirrer? You know, easy example, the, the, the swizzle, the stirring uh, spoon that you tend to see people use. Um, it's going to have a little spiral on the spoon itself. And the purpose of that is you can pour the liquor onto that spiral and it will trickle down slowly into the cocktail. And when you mix the liquors together more slowly, it changes the composition before you go through with a stirring or a shaking process. And like the chemistry of all of that is just fascinating to me. Yeah, I was just thinking this is an incredibly chemical thing. Can you tell us more about that? Well, I'm not a chemist. I don't know a whole <laughs> lot about the chemistry. Uh, but what I do know is that, you know, the, there's a lot of um, a lot of what affects the flavor, particularly with cocktails, is going to be the speed of the combination um, and the aggression of, of the cooling process. So if you cool something more rapidly or more aggressively or you agitate it more aggressively, it's definitely going to modify the flavor profile. The most easy example to think of is um, if you use some sort of like egg white in a cocktail, all of those creamy cocktails that you'll see at like a fancy cocktail bar have egg whites in them. And the way they get them to be creamy and uniform throughout the glass is through an emulsion. So you have to really shake incredibly hard to actually emulsify the egg. Um, if you if you don't shake hard enough, you're going to end up with a cocktail that starts to separate uh, kind of midway through. And, you know, it, it's it's little things like that, the little details that can make a huge difference for somebody, you know, if they're not going to just pound the cocktail back. If they sit there for a while with it and it starts to look unpleasant, you know, that, yeah. that's going to speak to the bartender. So <laughs> I, I, I learned a lot from talking to uh, uh, just some local bartenders. I would, you know, pull up a stool and, and start asking them questions. And I was really surprised how uh, willing and, and happy they were to talk about what they were doing. Uh, every bartender I, I sat down with who wasn't, you know, slammed and busy all the mm-hmm. time, 
if they had time on their hands, they loved to talk about their their practice. They felt like it was a, a, a real art that they were engaged in. And I got to mm-hmm. agree the more I learned about it. You know, they, these people would, I would say, okay, well, what have you been playing around with? And they would make me a cocktail that wasn't on the menu, that wasn't, uh, you know, involving spirits or, or, or syrups that I'd ever heard of before. You know, they put like some elderflower liqueur in with this elderberry spe- uh, uh, simple syrup. And, you know, it, it, it was unusual and interesting and engaging uh, both to my mind and to my palate. So that was, you know, that was everything I needed to hear and see was not to get me hooked. Yeah, well, I, I have a feeling that that may have been something of a symbiotic thing, because it certainly sounds like having an audience like that must really work for a, a bartender who likes to oh, try yeah. new stuff. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. They loved they love to experiment with me and, and I'm happy to be experimented on. <laughs> So, so I'm still not quite past the idea that there's egg white in a lot of cocktails. Do you, can, how, yeah. how? <laughs> yeah, that, that does, that bothers people. Um, it's best not to think about it sometimes when you're drinking those cocktails, but, uh, yeah, luckily, you know, the egg whites tend to, tend to be, uh, well, first off, they tend to use pasteurized eggs. So, um, you know, the biggest concern about things like salmonella is, is, you know, alleviated. You're not going to have that problem, mm-hmm. but, but even still the egg white, um, you know, it's it's a pretty versatile part of the egg in, in a lot of different cooking. Um, I'm like I said, I'm not a chemist. I'm not a, I'm not a chef either. But uh, I know that you can use egg whites in a lot of fun, interesting ways to as a binding agent mm-hmm. and as an emulsifier. So they're, they're, it's a fun thing to experiment with, for sure. Do you have any idea how it how they first came to be in cocktails? Oh, no, I, I I'm not sure about that. I uh Unfortunately, my my history of cocktails is weaker <laughs> than my history of whiskey. I know a lot more about the where, where bourbon and, and and scotch comes from, but that's, uh, that's but okay. uh, yeah, there, there's uh, it must have been a happy accident. That's all I can figure. There's no way somebody did that with real intention. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of like the you know when you think about an artichoke and what you have to go through to get right. to the edible part of the artichoke, you really right. wonder who who figured out that there was even anything edible in there oh absolutely and 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 yeah egg white in a drink sort of feels the same way to me like who would have thought to put it's not something i mean anybody who's ever even just scrambled eggs knows you got to work pretty hard to evenly mix an egg white even with its yolks so absolutely yeah that just doesn't doesn't seem like your first choice well the one that you know in that similar vein the thing that i always think about is um the first scotch drinkers so when i was talking about the isla scotches before part of that is uh, a function of how they had to dry the grains you have to dry the grains before you can actually distill the spirit and the drying process is typically done with just you know air and time if you're in a warm dry climate but if you're not you have to use some sort of heat Mm -hmm. and the only thing they had in scotland in that area at the time was peat. They were essentially burning earth to dry these grains. Um, but the end result of that is something that tastes like medicine and and maybe even poison. And I always <laughs> kind of I always kind of taste that and I go, how would somebody first taste this and go, yes, that's that's fine. That's what it's supposed to be. <laughs> I, I can't wrap my head around that. Like they, they must have been very desperate. <laughs> well, and the same thing when you said that there are, are flavors of rubber. That was what I thought. Yeah. I was like, why why would you want to drink something that tastes like rubber? Yeah, those are hard. Those are uh, pretty advanced flavors. I have a hard time with a lot of those. Uh, but but a lot of people really like them. They really seek it out. The, the smokier, the better, the more chemically, the better for some people. 
It's it's fascinating to me because you know even I don't know much about Scotch. I've just been to Scotland for the first time. You know, I I went to Edinburgh Castle because of course you have to go to Edinburgh Castle. And after I managed not to blow off the edge of Edinburgh Castle, <laughs> um, you know, I went into the little place where it said that they had tastings because I was like, okay, and. Yeah. And they had they had a, a cream liqueur that honestly I tasted it and I just you know somebody possibly you <laughs> would have if I had said what I was thinking would have probably whacked me over the head because I just kind of tasted that and said so it's Bailey's um, <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> which you know I, I spent six months in Northern Ireland I know enough to know that that's probably not the thing to say out loud in Scotland but. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that's what it made me think of. And I, yeah. you know, I know Bushmills, which is mm-hmm. whiskey from Northern Ireland. Um, so I don't know if that's what I would have thought of if I had tried actual scotch rather than than the cream liqueur. Yeah. But but yeah, I was kind of I was disappointed that I didn't get a chance to actually just taste the stuff without having to order an actual drink that I knew I wasn't going to drink all of. Right. And, and right. you know, so but I know even without having done that, that it is, you know, it's like wine. There's, there's such a huge range of, it, oh, you know, yeah. rubber and peat to none of that. Oh yeah. You can get to the sweetest, most caramel, chocolate, toffee, something that tastes like straight up candy. Do people get super snobby about that? Like, Oh, oh if yeah. you just want the sweet stuff, you're just a lightweight and you, oh, you know, yeah. people, yeah. there's a huge, there's a huge, um, rift, between actually there's a couple different rifts basically just wherever you're located it's all very regional i think in part because um the process of making whiskey in different regions has changed a lot over the years and so bourbons have a lot of um government regulations around them so Mm -hmm. if you're making whiskey in the united states and you're making bourbon um which is even a smaller subset of u.s whiskey um you're going to have a much narrower flavor profile than somebody in scotland where you can have a lot wider of a variety of flavors uh, and processes to develop the, the liquor um i think that you know that there's a big uh, attitude with people especially people that like the isla scotches they like the smokier flavors they kind of they kind of keep to themselves. There's people that call it the cult of Isla. I've heard that before. Um, it's, it's, you know, a very in, in group way of thinking. And I think the same thing's true with bourbon. People who really love bourbon, um, are, are going to just dismiss anything that's scotch, anything that's Irish and just say, you know, no, 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 I drink bourbon. That's all. And they, they get kind of, um, insular with their, with their bourbon people, which I think is a real shame. I think that, you know, there are some really great scotches and irish whiskeys out there that have a lot of sweet uh warm components that are much more akin to a bourbon and there are some people right now uh in the united states particularly a company in texas called balconis who are making um whiskeys in america that are very reminiscent of the scotch techniques and the scotch flavors and so i'm really glad to see some people are trying to venture outside of those typical norms and and uh those those almost stereotypes at this point uh, it's important, I think, to explore your palate because you might find something you really like. You know, my dad mm-hmm. had always tried whiskey kind of just to humor me and he didn't really <laughs> care for it that much. But he was like, well, I can see he likes it. He's passionate about it. And, um, and then just recently, actually, I got him a pour of uh, Lagavulin 16, which is a smoky Isla Scotch. He loved it. I've never seen him enjoy a spirit more. And I would have never in a thousand years expected him to like that stuff. But, you know, it just goes to show you that you never really know what you're going to like until you try it. It's true. 
It's very true. And and for as much as I don't typically drink, one of the things that I do love, though I will admit that I tend to limit it to when I get a nasty sore throat because it's the best thing in the world for it. So I'm I'm probably, you know, diminishing it to medicine. But when I lived in Northern Ireland, pretty early on, somebody asked me if I would like a hot whiskey. Mm. And, you know, I said, I don't know. What is that? Yeah. And they got me one. And, it, you know, again, you know, it was like one of these things where I, I'll take three hours to drink one of those. So sure. it's not very sure. hot by the time I get done with it. <laughs> but but I loved it. It was like one of the best things that I learned about and also how to make when I was over there. And I, you know, I don't do it that often, but yeah, but yeah, you know, get me, get me a cup of hot water and a shot of whiskey and some lemon and cloves and sugar and a cinnamon stick. And I am, I am good to go for a while. And it really is the best thing for a sore throat. It's amazing. Oh yeah. I mean, that's very much like a hot toddy. It's almost Mm -hmm. the exact same. And those, you know, that kind of, you know, mix of the medicinal qualities of whiskey is, it's almost kind of a joke for some people because, you know, during Prohibition, doctors would write prescriptions to allow people to get medicinal whiskey. And mm-hmm. everybody kind of did that with a wink and a nod and knew what was really going on. But, uh, you know, there are some things about the the alcohol content that will soothe your throat that will, uh, you know, it's good for, again, you know, there's a fine line between use of an abuse. So people right. always should be careful. But like if you have, you know, somebody's having a panic attack, you know, ha- half an ounce of whiskey, just a little bit, not even a full drink. Um, it, it is something that will sort of slow the processes down just enough that can help people, you know, feel a little bit calmer if they don't have access to, you know, something more traditional. Uh, I know that I, I've had panic attacks in the past that luckily I've been able to, um, you know, develop some, some breathing techniques and Mm -hmm. other ways to, to deal with it. But when I didn't have access to anything and I was just, you know, running on fumes, just literally a half an ounce of whiskey and I would be able to like take enough of a deep breath to slow my process down. Now I don't advocate that. I, I, must, <laughs> I need to be clear. That's, that was not a healthy way to deal with this, but the fact that it actually worked and you know, I was, and this isn't somebody I was not at the time and I am not today drinking, you know, many drinks a day or anything like that. It was, it's still an occasional thing that always should be in my opinion. Um, but it's, it's, you know, interesting to see that this, this, alcohol, this thing that was so demonized, um, can be used in positive ways. And like I said, that's, that comes back to the idea of wanting to, you know, have this social engagement be a a fundamental part of the drinking experience for, for people. Um, this isn't just about getting drunk. This isn't about, uh, you know, trying to forget your problems. This is about Mm -hmm. getting together and having a good time and, and enjoying life and your family and your friends. Yeah. And, and, you know, with, with the whole medicinal thing, I'm also thinking of all of the, you know, older classic novels or whatever else yeah. that's, that's of a certain era where something's wrong with somebody and the solution is bring a brandy, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, I and, mean, it was used as antiseptic during the yeah. Civil War. It, it was, I mean, they, we didn't yeah. have anything to knock these people out. Give them some whiskey. That's the best we can do. Right. Right. Not that we recommend that you do that now. <laughs> no, right. Well, now, now we have, right. You know, there's a lot of, there is unavoidably, there's harm potential with spirits. It can, right. it can cause problems. So, 
you know, it's it's always good to drink responsibly, responsibly, but it's also worth, you know, remembering there are more targeted remedies now for mm-hmm. almost everything. Um, but that opens up whiskey to be enjoyed in a social context. <laughs> right. So where do you... You know, how do you encourage people to be more social without overdoing it? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I think a lot of it is sort of self-awareness. I think a lot of people uh, get caught up in, um, you know, the 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 enjoyment of the moment makes it easy to kind of lose pace of yourself and, and your, your understanding of, you know, how am I feeling? How am I doing? Am I, you know, self-monitoring? Um and at a certain point, uh, you're unable to do that at all. And that's why I think it's so important to start the night in that mentality. Start the night saying, you know, hey, I'm going to have a couple of drinks. I'm going to pay attention to how I'm feeling and, and respond accordingly. Um, because usually when you see people that are having really bad experiences with alcohol and they're going way too far, it's because they entered, they, you know, they started, they hit the ground running and they started very strong. Um, and by the time they had a chance to catch up and, and have that sort of self-reflection moment, uh, they were too deep and mm-hmm. in the spirit and they weren't able to really do a proper self-reflection. So I think the, the big thing for me is, is sort of a mindfulness, honestly, um, just understanding your, yourself and knowing what you, uh, like and what you need. Um, nobody wants to get sick. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants that experience. It's a terrible experience for everyone. Um, but I also think that, frankly, you know, if you're going to drink on a regular basis, that's going to happen once at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's because it's a it's a sort of a moment of learning. You know, you understand, oh, OK, that's a place I can never go again. That's right. that's what too far looks like in an extreme sense. And so now I start to walk back from that and I understand, OK, you know, when I drank this many drinks, I got sick. So let's cut that in half and see what that looks like. And, you know, did I did I feel impaired? Did I feel, um, you know, like I could enjoy the night and, and keep drinking with people and tasting new things? Or did I feel like I was being, you know, hindered in that regard as well? There's there's a balance for for everybody. And I think that, you know, the, the other big component of this is I talked about self-awareness. Um, there's also sort of a uh, avoidance of social pressure. You know, there's mm-hmm. always going to be people that push you to drink more. That's it's a constant. And I strongly recommend, um, you know, not doing that, obviously. But <laughs> if people are, are doing that, you know, I I, th- I always ask them and say, well, why do, you, why do you want me to drink more? Is it because you want mm-hmm. me to have a good time? I'm having a good time. I don't need another drink. I'm OK. I'm doing great. And I'll sit here and I'll sip this drink with you. But I'm not going to. The shots are a great example. Shots are are the enemy of spirit enjoyment, as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> because if you're taking a shot of straight liquor, now there's a difference between a shot and a shooter also mm-hmm. because shooters are designed to be taken at one shot and they're very often majority not liquor. Um, but taking shots, uh, you know, an ounce and a half of straight whiskey or vodka or whatever straight to the head, that is just a recipe for disaster. Um, I know some people really like it, but I, I, I can't I can't wrap my head around doing that as a as an enjoyment technique. So, you know, if somebody's trying to pressure you into things like that, say, uh, this is what I always do, and I, it, it works a lot. Um, if somebody wants me to take a shot with them, I said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'll buy a drink, and I'll take a drink with you. You know, I don't mm-hmm. have to drink an ounce and a half right away. I can sit here and take this eighth of an ounce of a sip, you know, of, mm-hmm. this, of this spirit, and it's still, we're still drinking together. You know, we're still having the social experience. Um, unfortunately, there's not a good metric that works for everybody when it comes to avoiding overindulgence. 
um, it's but I think the diligence of, of self-knowledge um, and the uh, not being afraid to, to confront people if they're trying to push you, uh, those two components are really critical to uh, making sure that you have a good time. This isn't about them. This is about your journey and your spirits uh, and your experience with them. That's uh, putting that all together is, is really important. Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded that I saw something a couple months ago that, that it, you know, I'd never thought about it before. But as soon as I saw it, I thought that's so incredibly true, which said alcohol is the only drink or only drug you have to explain not using. Exactly. Exactly. I, mean, I would add caffeine in there, too, as someone who doesn't really yeah. do caffeine. But um, but yeah, you know, when I thought about that, I was like, yeah, why? Why is that? I mean, there is this cultural thing that like there's something wrong with you if you don't drink or if you don't drink as much as I do or as much as I think you should. Right. And I feel like that's, you know, so, so destructive. And I I don't yeah. know. I mean, because when I think of over drinking, I, I automatically think of college campuses because I feel like yeah. that's, you know, the stereotypical example. And I don't know if it starts there, if that's where the whole pressure thing starts and then people carry it with them. But it's it's so unfortunate. I mean, like I said, you know, I can I can nurse a drink for hours, right? you know, and still not finish it. And yeah. I'm totally okay with that. And, you know, it's really not anybody else's, it's not anybody else's business if I sit there with a glass of, you know, water or seltzer or, or whatever, right. Right. but, but people make it their business or try yeah. to, and it's like, yes. this is not about you. This is, this is about me. I mean, I have a friend who kind of has the ultimate excuse. She is so allergic to alcohol that it will kill her if she has right. it, you know, right. and that, that kind of thing will stop people dead in their tracks, oh, yeah. you know, that, and no pun intended. That was bad. Um, but, but, you know, she she's a great bartender and and she will oh, tell the story That's fantastic. of how when she I mean, she was tending bar when she was, a, you know, a teenager. But yeah. she she tells the story of, you know, being at at a bar where she was not drinking and questioned by the police when she was a kid and they called her father and he came to pick her up and he said, no, I know she hasn't been drinking. And the, you know, the officer just looks at him and says, and sir, how would you know that? And he said, because she's still breathing, <laughs> Wow, <laughs> you know, so she can be around it. She just can't have it. Yeah. And, and people, people do respect that. If you say, if I drink that, oh, yeah. it will kill me. That, that does kind of put a different light on things, but for the rest of us, it can be really, really awkward to say, yeah. Sorry, just not my thing. People just don't want to accept that. Even when it's yeah. coffee versus alcohol, they they oh, yeah. just don't grasp it. Well, and and the thing that always gets me is you know, I come back to the, the question of what's what's your motivation and for wanting me to drink? So yeah, much? you know, I, I if you want to make sure I'm having a good time, I'll have a good time. I, I'll I'll you know we can check in, we can talk about whatever, but I, I can handle the drinking component of all of this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's uh, I, I will say. That the more I um, meet and engage with uh, people who you know drink regularly and who take it very seriously as a hobby, the more I find people that uh, will respect those boundaries. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if it's because that seriousness, um, you know, they, they recognize the responsibility of not pushing people. Because you know, if you sit down at a at a friend's house, and I've done this a couple of times, where you get a group of of people together to do some sort of tasting event, if there's twenty or thirty bottles of spirits on the table, you can't push people, or they mm-hmm. will have real problems. 
you know, it's got to be something that you do at a slow, small, measured pace to be able to have the experience, to enjoy the experience, and then to not leave the place drunk. You know, and and you can people think it's like impossible to do that. There's a way to do that. You don't. You're not going to necessarily get drunk if you go through that process. Mm-hmm. Don't taste the ones you've tasted before. If you take a nip of something you don't like, don't finish it. You know, there's a lot of things you can do. Um, but the people that I've experienced uh, at those events, they they're not going to push you. Now, I will say, I've got some friends that if I'm sitting there and, and drinking the same drink for about an hour, they'll give me a little ribbing. But mm-hmm. I also know that it's good natured mm-hmm. and that they're not going to keep coming back to it. It's a one off. It's a joke. We can all laugh about it together. Right. Right. And and go back to it. So I think there's also this familiarity component. You're If you're with friends and your friends are giving you a little bit of uh, a ribbing, it's very different than somebody who either you don't know very well mm-hmm. or somebody who keeps coming back to it and keeps pushing. You know, that's when you start yeah. to reevaluate. Like, why are you so interested you know, yeah, if it's one off. I get it. But what what is what's going on here? Yeah. What what are you going to get out of the yeah. idea that I'm going to have more when I don't want it? Exactly. Yeah. Why do you think that I should want it? Right. Right. Yeah. And that's and that's the that's where you get into the, the question for them that that's the self-reflection that they need to do. And a lot of people haven't done it. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you haven't spent a lot of time around spirits and, you know, forced yourself to think about uh, the, the resp- there's almost a responsibility. You have to treat this stuff with respect because it can literally kill you if you're not mm-hmm. careful. And I think that having that respect for the spirit and the process and the consumption uh, all kind of works together. It's a respect for the whole, the whole endeavor um, that, that I think very frequently pushes people away from overindulgence because they, they understand how much time and effort went into uh, the product. Mm-hmm. And you well, want it's slow. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, yeah, I think that it's an appreciation thing too. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of comparing this in my head right now to, you know, if you're going to have a whole lot to drink at one time, you're not going to appreciate it. You're probably not even going to notice yeah. it. And, and I'm yeah. thinking it's sort of like if you sit down and really, really listen to a Beethoven symphony, Right. Like how many people even do that anymore? We're all doing other things. We put it on as background music. We hear it in a movie and in a movie we might pay more attention because it's going to bring the drama out or whatever. But, you know, if because I I did this just just like a week ago, I, I went out for a walk and I was listening to the second movement of Beethoven's second symphony. And it did make it much more cinematic. You know, oh, yeah. I really could, I'm sure it did. <laughs> could appreciate it. You know, I mean, I'm looking up at the trees that are blooming and, and all of that and listening to the birds through the Beethoven. And, and it did, it, it really, it, there were moments where I felt like I was in a movie, but even if I didn't go outside, even if I just sat down with a pair of headphones on and listened to that for the, you know, not quite 10 minutes that it takes, yeah. you notice so much more than you do if it's just, you know, playing at the restaurant while you're having dinner with a friend and you're yeah. barely conscious that it's there. And I oh, think yeah. that there's there's a lot more to get out of not just a symphony or a good drink that we don't even notice anymore because we're so busy trying to do 86 things at one moment. Absolutely. I'm actually really glad you brought that up for a couple of reasons. First off, I love music. (laughs) And I actually, so I have got a record player and a large record collection. Um, And part of the reason I enjoy records so much and I I gravitate towards records is 
it kind of forces you to sit down and have the musical experience. Mm-hmm. It's it's a lot more difficult when you're going to have to get up every 20 minutes and flip a record over or replace a record. It's a lot more difficult to set it and forget it and have music just be straight up background. The music becomes the experience. Mm-hmm. And I think with spirits, I'm a big believer in in that as well. There are spirits that you can have as sort of background or they can accompany a meal or, you know, you can drink while you're playing a game or something. That's that's much more um, uh, it, for me. It's a different kind of spirit. There's something that are much more either simplistic uh, or subtle and quiet, not in the t- sense of having to pull out specific notes, but in the sense that there's not a lot happening in the spirit. And that's not a bad thing. I think that's very valuable. Um, you know, when I when, if I have a, a, a relatively low dollar uh, glass of, of whiskey, um, I don't feel bad about not paying attention to it. You know, I can have a sip of it while I'm playing a board game with friends or while I'm having a conversation. But when you start bringing out some of these very expensive whiskeys and boy, do they get expensive quick. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they have some out there that are six or $700. If you're paying that much for a bottle of whiskey, there's a lot more expensive too. Those are just the ones I've been able to have. <laughs> um, uh, but if you, if you, you know, are paying that much for a bottle of whiskey, you better freaking focus on it. it that yeah. better be the center of attention. That's like, that's like a, a you know, the piece. There's a stance. It, it has to be. Um, so, so it's going to be a very different drinking experience and, you know, you have to approach it differently. But I think that, you know, my, the Beethoven's a really great example because there's so much nuance mm-hmm. and interesting uh, musical architecture, essentially. It's so layered and, and developed and subtle that you you almost do it a disservice if you don't give it the, the focus. You're going to miss so much. Mm-hmm. Um, luckily, it's much easier to replicate with with technology listening to beethoven again it can be harder to do that right. with some of these expensive spirits but uh, but i think the logic is very much the same yeah and too much beethoven at one time is probably not going to exactly know, leave you incapacitated well there's that <laughs> so maybe if it does it'll probably be in a good way well i was we actually i was thinking yeah that, that might be true but i was also thinking like if you if you listen to beethoven for six hours in a straight you're going to get a little sick of Beethoven. Yes. Probably. It's going to be too much. Right. You know, when you have something that's that delicate and nuanced and engaging, it, it you can't do it over and over and mm-hmm. over again in a row or you're just going to drive yourself crazy. Yeah. Like anything else. Yeah. We, right, absolutely. Totally lost our sense of moderation in many ways, I think. Yeah. Unfortunately. A shame. Yeah. So I, I've seen your YouTube channel and you were having so much fun on your YouTube channel that the fact that I don't really drink and I'm probably never going to try whatever it was that you were talking about didn't even matter. So I'm curious to know how it is that you decided to do YouTube. Like, were you already doing workshops and things like for friends or for like a side business? Or did you just get up and say, hey, YouTube is a thing. Let's do this. That's uh <laughs> I'm looking back. It wasn't that long ago. I started this channel. I wish I had a better answer for why I started doing it. It kind of just came spur of the moment. I think what That's had happened, honestly, yeah, right. <laughs> I think honestly, what happened was, um, I'd always said to myself, you know, I wanted a passion project. Uh, when I, when I, when I have a creative, you know, uh, energy inside of me, and I, I just feel compelled to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always felt that way with music. I've always felt that way. Uh, with cooking and food, but um, I wanted to do something where I could, you know, create something for other people to engage with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I 
I have trouble with the performative aspect of uh, music in a lot of ways um, for a variety of different reasons, but it just, it never really felt right to me to perform on a stage. Most of the music that I make that I really enjoy the most is stuff I make just sitting with a couple friends in my, uh, in my music room, just working on stuff and, and recording on the computer. Um, but that, that always kind of felt like, uh, uh I don't know, it, it didn't quite scratch the right itch for mm-hmm. me. There was a formative aspect of, of art that I really enjoy. You know, I started I think the first thing I ever really did perform in a performative way was poetry. I was writing poetry in grade school, I think, and uh, writing it and reading it and doing poetry events and stuff. So I've always liked the performance in, in some regard. Um, and I did do a lot of music performance in high school. I was in marching band. I was in a, a drum corps. Uh, so I think that finding a new way to talk about uh, you know, to, to perform and to talk about spirits just kind of naturally, co- naturally coalesced because I enjoyed the spirits. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I had seen people do YouTube channels before. Uh, I had friends that did that kind of, uh, I have friends that do videography. I have friends that work on other YouTube channels. Um, so I had a lot of connections with that medium. And I had never really considered it, actually, though, until my girlfriend got me into YouTube more. I had seen one-off videos, but there are a lot of channels out there that make regular content just like a TV show. Mm-hmm. Um, and that had never even occurred to me. So being, you know, sort of brought into this new world and awoken to the YouTube universe uh, and seeing all these people just just like me, you know, mm-hmm. hanging out with some friends and, and turning it into a video and then having millions of people watch it, I thought that that is such an incredible tool uh, I want to be a part of this, you know, I want to be a part of this, uh, community. And I had at this time been sort of diving deeper and deeper into the whiskey community. Mm-hmm. And so I went, well, I bet there's a whiskey community online. Mm-hmm. And I started looking around and sure enough, I found lots of channels making videos on this stuff. But the one thing that caught me was I always kind of felt like there was a low energy engagement. Which is not, there's nothing wrong with that. There's a way to have a relaxing, soothing experience on mm-hmm. YouTube um, and, and have it be valuable and enjoy the spirit along with the, the, the person shooting the video. But that's not my energy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm high energy. I get excited. I am invigorated by all of this stuff. I get, uh, my girlfriend always tells me to talk quieter because I get loud and excited. <laughs> I'm just so enamored with with this world of, of new flavors and experiences. Um so I, I felt like there was a space for me, you know, uh, this guy that's just excited about what he's doing and, and wants to share it with you in, in that kind of high energy way. Um, it was it was really just uh, a fun, you know, coming together of a lot of different things that I was seeing around me and enjoying. And uh, it, it all it's all come together pretty well so far. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the fact that you are so excited about it is what makes it so much fun, even if, I, you know, I'm not necessarily in it to say, oh, I want to see what he thinks about this thing that I was thinking about trying because I'm yeah. probably not going to. But it's still fun to watch you go through the process of explaining it and, you know, getting excited. In fact, I think there was even a little label that came up and said, excited, Kyle. And I was like, yeah. yes, yes, you are. <laughs> yeah, I've been having fun. <laughs> learning video editing too and <laughs> <laughs> there was one of the one of the videos i do it's the william larue weller tasting um i uh i got really 
happy about learning how to do like a slow zoom in. Mm-hmm. And I added this music over top of it so you could see this like hallelujah moment when I first taste this very <laughs> rare whiskey. I was having way too much fun in the editing room. I was laughing so loud. My girlfriend came in and was like, what are you laughing about? I said, look, at look what I've done. <laughs> uh, she wasn't as impressed as I was, but it's okay. <laughs> but you know what? I think if you're having fun, it's like, it's like anything else. It's like, you know, I tell people when they're writing or painting or, you know, making music or whatever, if you're, yeah. if you're having fun, other people are going to have fun with it too. If you're yeah. not having any fun writing your book, nobody is going to have fun reading it. Right. Oh, totally. Totally. You know, so yeah, and even even making music. I mean, you can you can tell if a performer doesn't really want to be there and, oh, and you yeah, feel you really it. Can. It it comes through. So so yeah, I think that that you are having so much fun and you're so excited is a, a major, major asset. Have what what have you, you know, learned along the way aside from video editing? Oh, yeah. I've, I mean, I've learned a lot. I've learned, um, I mean, obviously, video editing lighting is maybe the biggest thing kind of as mm. an aside on that point. But like, I, I had to buy some soft boxes, I had to learn about how to light myself and to make a, a studio space that felt both natural and comfortable, uh, without being sort of, um, like too plasticine and, and, mm-hmm. and manufactured. Uh, it, and, you know, the spirit world is something I've really dug into and explored these different flavors and uh uh you know interesting profiles i've also learned a lot about how glassware can affect what you're drinking i think that might be the biggest change um i had always drank whiskey out of a pretty standard rocks glass that you'd see in a you know like a mad men episode Mm -hmm. um i very quickly have moved away from that and moved towards a much what they call a glencairn glass and it's sort of a tulip shaped glass with a long uh top fluted top mm-hmm. um and you know using that kind of glass with a bulb at the end and spinning the spirit around really moves the alcohol and changes the flavor profile and changes the nose i'm amazed how different it tastes when you drink it out of a different glass um that's something that i'd never expected yeah and i'm i'm sitting here nodding my head at you because when i went to ipnc you know the world's most ignorant wine snob here but <laughs> but there was an entire session that I wish I had had a chance to go to. I can't remember now why I didn't make it, but I didn't. But the, I think his name's George Riedel from the Riedel Glass Company. Like Mm -hmm. they make a glass for each varietal of wine. Yes. And, you know, I mean, and I saw that because I'm ignorant and I thought, you got to be kidding me. I mean, there's like (laughs) maybe a red glass and a white glass, right? But really, what's the big deal? And like everybody got a stemless Riedel Pinot Noir glass as, you know, part of your little gift bag when you got there. So I still have that. But, you know, there were people talking about it afterwards and saying, yeah, it really makes this huge difference. And I didn't appreciate it until I went to this thing, which is part of what I was sort of retroactively curious, which didn't work very well for me. Um, (laughs) Can't really wind back the clock and go. But yeah, I've I've heard that before. And I I have a feeling it probably surprises a lot of people. Oh, yeah, it does. And, you know, one of the fun experiments I've done um, several times is I'll put the exact same amount of the same spirit in uh, a rocks glass and in one of these tulip Glencairn glasses. And I'll have people try it in each glass. And I won't tell them generally that's the same spirit. I'll just say, which one do you like more? Mm. Um, and the interesting thing so far is that typically the men like the tulip glass more and the women like the rocks glass more. I started reading about this and part of the logic is, um, about sensitivity of Mm -hmm. your, of your nose. 
if you can pick up scents more more closely and you have a more nuanced nasal palate, for lack of a better term, uh, <laughs> you you will not like the tulip glass as much because it focuses the ethanol too much and becomes too much uh, burn in your nose. Uh, so people that have very sensitive noses will definitely err towards a small rocks glass, whereas people that uh, can't pick up as much scent will love these tulip glasses because all that scent is being concentrated and, you know, shot into their nostrils. Wow. So it was a very cool experience the, to, to give that to a room of 10 different people. Uh, I think it was three women and seven men, and only one person bucked that trend. Uh, it, was, uh, it was very interesting to see. That is interesting. And it kind of implies that, you know, we have different senses of smell depending on our packaging. Yeah. Yeah. I can, yeah, I can it, see that though. The fun, ex the fun experiment. And, and it's the kind of thing too, where, you know, my, my fun anecdote aside about, about, you know, your sense of smell and, and your sensitivity, it's a really important thing to do to improve your own experience. You know, one of my friends that was at that event the, the matter of fact, the only male who preferred the rocks glass, he now brings rocks glasses with him because a lot of these tasting events, they only have Glencairn ah. glasses. And he has so much of a better experience mm -hmm. because he's not getting so much of that ethanol burn. So, you know, being able to learn more about yourself and what you enjoy is so helpful to improving the whole atmosphere of, of an event like that where, where you're going to be tasting things like you mentioned that you've never tried before um I, I i can't recommend it enough and it's so easy to do if you've got three different kinds of glasses you've got a wine glass you've got a, a you know a, a tumbler or a rocks glass and maybe you even have you know what's like a like a small champagne flute or something um you put it in each of those three glasses and see which one you like the best because you might be surprised it's, it's so interesting to me how many layers there are to all of this. You know, you think oh, yeah. of something like alcohol as you try something, you decide that this is the thing that you like. And, and it, you yeah. know, I mean, I feel like, you know, wine gets all the focus on all of the different nuance and all that yeah. kind of stuff. And and it wasn't until I watched your your channel that I thought, wow, you know, there's there's a lot hidden in here, too. I mean, and yeah. and the, the one that I remember, there was a moment when you put like just a drop of water in the whiskey and, and and you sort of seemed to feel like you had to justify that to the purists like why you would do yeah. that but i was so yeah. fascinated by the difference in what you noticed before you did that and the difference afterwards and it's oh, yeah. it, you know i mean it's a drop of water it's a, right. the shape of a glass it it's yeah yeah, the 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 water is a fun one for me for a couple of different reasons because we, we talked before about whiskey snobs. Um, there are people that just find adding ice or water to spirits, particularly with whiskey, but you see it with almost every spirit. If people are doing, you know, engaged tasting, they're like, "Oh, you added water to that? That's how you know? How dare you?" Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think that's so misguided. You know, first off, if you look at the history of of whiskey, you know. If you go to uh, Scotland and, and Ireland, a lot of times they will add water to their whiskey because that in, historically they always did. Um, so, the, you know, the, first off, the, there you go. The people that were inventing this stuff a thousand years ago add it. So why can't you? But but even more importantly, like I said before about, you know, maximizing your experience, uh, adding a couple drops of water can really change the, the profile on a whiskey. You know, it opens up all of these different components. And I think a lot of it really is due to um, adding a new element mm -hmm. and water just being a very neutral element. Uh, it kind of breaks up these bonds that are otherwise being formed 
um, you know, and that have had a long time to sort of coalesce in the bottle. So you're forcing the whiskey to sort of <laughs> reevaluates the wrong word. It implies way too much knowledge for the whiskey to have, <laughs> but, but you know what I mean? It, it's, it's, it's really kind of changing the composition in a fun way, but, you know, talking about the wine, um, sort of the, the, the large world of wine and wine enthusiasm and sommeliers and things like that. I think a big part of the uh, spirit world that's being uh, adopted into that enthusiasm comes out of barrel aged spirits. Um, things like whiskey have, you know, are on the forefront of my mind, but there are others um, that you're, you're putting in, in oak barrels and they're changing the flavors. I know that cognac and Armagnac are getting a lot more of a following now. So Brandy's is kind of having a moment. Um, and I've seen a lot of other kinds of spirits that are now being barrel aged. Uh, when I was in Amsterdam, I picked up a bottle of barrel aged Genevieve, which is a precursor to gin. Um, and the, you know, this was put in, in virgin oak for 10 years, which is just like what they do with bourbon. And when you take a drink of it, it tastes like a juniper forward bourbon. It's a very strange experience. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I've also seen tequilas that they're they're doing barrel aging. And there was a moment there where um, mezcal was, was really getting popular because of the smoky components in it. You know, there are a lot of nuances in these spirits that come out of time spent in oak barrels and are you using a brand new barrel or one that's been used before and what was in this barrel before mm -hmm. all of those components make radical changes to the flavor profile uh, and and it's easy to uh, it's easy to appreciate those differences because they're so pronounced when you're comparing side by side you know four or five different eight-year-old or nine-year-old spirits that have been aged for the same amount of time it can be harder to find because then you're talking about well what's the composition of the spirit what went into the grains that were then distilled what was about the distillation process what about the stills that were used to distill the whiskey that's a big one people don't think about because a pot still is just going to have one point of entry for the liquor after it's being distilled into the storage container whereas a column still has multiple points of entry and so you get a much narrower flavor um, you know, those elements do change the flavor a lot, but it's a lot harder to pick that up for, you know, a, a layman coming in and just taking mm -hmm. a sip out of a glass. But if you taste a, a, a scotch that's been aged in a sherry barrel, you're going to taste the sherry. You're going to smell the sherry. And then you have that exact same spirit or something very much like it that was just put into oak. And it's a totally different experience. And almost anybody can pick that out. Uh, so I feel like that's a really great entry point for people who want to learn more about these spirits because you can pretty easily find, um, if you're at a, at a bar that's got, uh, you know, more than two or three scotches, um, you're going to be able to find things that have been aged in port barrels and sherry barrels and, and Madeira casts. There's a lot of wine components that are coming into the scotch world and now into the bourbon world. That was historically not something that was done very much. But, uh, oh, I almost forgot my favorite one. Caribbean rum casks adds a really interesting sweetness to the spirit. Wow. Well, and I was just going to ask you, like, wh what do you where do you recommend people start? So that seems like yeah. you've sort of answered that, but I'll bet you have more to say about it. Uh, oh, I'm sure I do. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, the, I think that it, a lot of the starting point depends on where you're at right now. I think that people who have a hard time with any alcohol burn um, and just can't really get their their head around drinking a, a, a spirit neat. Um, good place to start is cocktails. And I like to focus on cocktails that are sort of one spirit driven. So if you want to learn more about clear spirits, gin and tonics, 
um, or you can go with, uh, you know, a vodka tonic or you can go with, a, a, you know, a martini, things like that, where there's not going to be a lot of other noise around the spirit, but you're not going to get straight alcohol burn. There's going to be more happening. And then over time, you can find elements that you like and that you don't like and then move either into straight spirits from that world or you can develop different tastes for different kinds of cocktails and different kinds of spirits from that world. I think if you're looking into getting into the world of whiskey, which is where I sort of am growing out of into the cocktail world, I'm kind of coming at this in reverse. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're wanting to get into whiskey, uh, you know, go to the classics, the old fashioned, the Manhattan, just very classic cocktails. Uh, in, in the near future, I'm going to do a video where I'm going to make an old fashioned with a scotch, a smoky scotch with a bourbon and with a rye. And I can kind of highlight all the different flavor profiles because they're going to be very different drinks. You know, all that really is, is sugar, a hint of fruit and bitters and the whiskey. Um, in terms of not having a problem with the, the little bit of burn from a, from a you know, straight spirit, I think one of the best places to start is figuring out what you like. You know, so go go to broad categories. Try try a, a very quintessential bourbon, something like uh, Wild Turkey 101, a Buffalo Trace. Um, you know, Four Roses is really common and really popular. Maker's Mark is a really common and popular one. A lot of times people come in on those whiskeys because they're very sweet. Um, they're very pleasant to a standard American palate. Um, so you're going to probably find something there you like. Um, you can explore some more and get into interesting areas with, you know, Irish whiskeys too. People are very familiar with Jameson, but Red Breast is maybe one of the best out there uh, in terms of doing something different with with a uh, with an Irish whiskey and, and making something that's really enjoyable. Middleton's another company that makes good good uh, Irish whiskeys. A lot of these companies are kind of incestuous. They all kind of related to each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the branding is is the easiest to spot on the bar. So don't worry too much about that. There's basically one company in Ireland that makes almost all their whiskey. Um, uh, there's a lot of, in terms of percentage of whiskey bought from Ireland. Uh, and then, you know, with Scotch, there's, there's four different regions. No, maybe there's probably more than that. I don't want to give bad information, but... There, if you ask somebody what the major regions of Scotland are, they're going to probably give you four or five major regions. Um, you're going to have Highlands, you're going to have Isla, you're going to have uh, Midlands. Um, I won't go through all of them because you can break down little pieces too with like Campbelltown and things like that where there are specific regions that have really fought to maintain independence from these other regions and say, no, our scotch is different. But that's that's a whole other world. Um, <laughs> it's definitely worth exploring You know, some major players in those categories. You know, people know Glenn Morangi, they know Glenn Livett, they've known McAllen. Those are brands that people, um, like I said, at a, at a whiskey bar that has more than two or three different whiskeys, they're going to have something from those categories. So I think it's always good to start there and then figure out what you like and don't like. Uh, and, and don't be afraid to not like stuff. If you don't like something, you don't like it. Or if you like a component of it, but you don't like a different component of it, you know, that, that's, a, that's sort of the next level is breaking down what you're enjoying about it. Um, I'll, I'll go back to the bourbon for a second. I think, you know, when people first drink Buffalo Trace, which is a, a very common bourbon, well, it used to be, it's, it's becoming harder to find because of, uh, the bourbon craze has, has grown so much in the last few years. Um, but if you, if you drink a wild turkey or a Buffalo Trace, the first thing a lot of people will say is, well, this is very smooth. Um, that's another thing that a lot of whiskey snobs have a real problem with is using the descriptor smooth. And I think that's foolish. I think there's no problem with calling a whiskey smooth. You just have to recognize it's not a flavor note. 
you know, smoothness is a is a feeling. It's an experience of the whiskey. All right, it's smooth. Why do you think it's smooth? Is it oily in your mouth or is it more like water? Is there any alcohol burn at all? When do you feel it? Do you feel it right away? Do you feel it later? Do you feel it after you drank it and it burns all the way down your chest? We call that a Kentucky hug. You know, there's <laughs> there's all kinds of different components uh, that that you can break out of the term smooth. So I think it's really valuable to kind of push yourself. If you're trying to go on this journey without a Sherpa, uh, you know, think about why I feel those ways, why I'm having this experience, what, what else is going on there. Um, the actually pulling out specific flavor notes is relatively late in the game. You know, the first step is, do I like it or do I not? Then, okay, what kind of descriptors do I have? Is it oily? Is it smooth? Is it sharp? Is it smoky? Is it, you know, whatever. Um, and then you can start to pull out different individual flavor notes. And the more you do that, then after that, it's just experience. The more you play around with it, the more you try different things, the more you find. Um, the one other big note I'll say uh, for people who want to get into this world is comparisons. It's really hard to taste a whiskey and then the next day taste a different whiskey and say, oh, I see how those are different. Because your memory will definitely play tricks on you. I know mm -hmm. mine does. Um, so if I sit down three different whiskeys in a row and like, I, and like I said before, not full pours, you know, you can do this with 10 whiskeys, but if you do little quarter ounce pours and you do it over a period of time, you know, you're not going to come out any worse for wear. And I mm -hmm. think that's really important for this, for this to be an enjoyable experience and something that's sustainable in any kind of way. Um, you know, you sit down with a couple different pours, you'll really notice the differences then, you know, I'll taste a, a Buffalo trace and I go taste the Glenlivet. And suddenly all these interesting, almost salty notes will come out that you don't expect from a, from that, from that smooth and, uh, unoffensive of a pour. It's not a challenging pour at all, but it becomes more challenging if you pair it next to something that's just almost syrupy sweet, mm -hmm. like maybe a maker's mark or a four roses. Um, so start doing those comparisons. If you want to learn more about that world, that's actually another thing I want to make some videos on is, is having me in the moment doing these side by side comparisons. I actually just did a video, um, which is up on the channel now where I compared, uh, this is kind of next level comparison, but I compared a, uh, two different, uh, barrel picks from, uh, barrel rise is, is the, is the company that they make this, they actually import this really good Canadian rye whiskey. And one of them was at 70% alcohol. The other one was 77% alcohol. I had never seen a commercial spirit at that high of a percentage that wasn't like Everclear or something that was mm -hmm. basically made to kill ticks or something. Right. You know, like I'd never seen anything like this. Um, but it was really interesting to do the side by side because um, I posted a video about just reviewing one of these two pours and it was like, jet fuel. It was really hard to drink. It was really hard for me to get good notes out of. But then when I did the side by side, I pulled out so many more interesting notes. I got this really interesting apple fruit orchard kind of characteristic out of one of the pours that I didn't have before. That experience wasn't there when I drank it on its own. And it's because of the priming. When I primed myself for this 70% whiskey with a 77% whiskey, <laughs> it felt like a step down and suddenly all those flavor notes became more prominent. Mm-hmm. So, you know, don't don't be afraid to do comparisons. I'm hoping to do a lot more of those because I really enjoy them. Well, and it seems to me like if somebody wants to get into this and does feel like they need to see have a Sherpa, since you use that term, that yeah. your YouTube channel might be a good place for them to to find one. Oh, absolutely. And if they've got questions, you know, I love answering questions. I've got all kinds of ways you can reach me. 
Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. It's all the Drink Pro. If you type the Drink Pro, you should be able to find me. Um, and, you know, I love talking with people about this stuff. Obviously, I'm obviously pretty excited <laughs> about it this, today. So, um, so if, if people want to learn, uh, they want to figure out where to start or they know they don't like, you know, any of these things and they want some guidance, I'm happy to offer it because, you know, I want this to be something everyone can enjoy. And you don't have to do it all the time and you don't have to become obsessed with it like I am. But <laughs> knowing how to enjoy it, I think is a really cool a life experience that I want as many people to get as that that can. Well, that's fantastic. And, and I will definitely link to all of those places so that people can find you even more easily if they forget sure. how to look you up. But um, yeah, thank you so much for this. This has been a really fun conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. I, I, I've had a blast talking about it. That's it for this week. Many thanks to Kyle Fletcher and to you for joining me. You'll find all the links to Kyle's work in the show notes at fycuriosity.com. If you enjoy the show, please leave me a review on iTunes. It really helps me find new listeners. Thanks so much. You can find show notes, the six creative beliefs that are screwing you up, and more at fycuriosity.com. I'd also love for you to join the conversation on Instagram. You'll find me at fycuriosity. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. See you next time.